This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado built a memorial to the thousands who have died in the AIDS epidemic here. But many people aren't aware it exists. The Grove, as it's known, is a section of Commons Park in downtown Denver, near where the South Platte River and Cherry Creek come together. The parkland has become overgrown with weeds, so volunteers have been cleaning up the memorial and plan to rededicate it Sunday. They want people to know it's here, just as the city of Denver and the state have set a goal to eradicate AIDS by 2030. Pat Gurley of Denver came out to help spiff the place up. One, I'm HIV positive, so this sort of space is very important to me personally. And then um, I go to San Francisco frequently, and they have a wonderful AIDS grove there. Just calm space in the middle of the city is good for anybody. <laughs> and an AIDS grove for me is a personal issue, one around my own HIV my partner who died in 95. I was also the nursing manager of the AIDS clinic at Denver Health for 20 years. The grove is sunken from street level. A winding path leads to a stone marker and a bench noting the date of the original dedication, August of 2000. Phil Nash of Denver also volunteered to rake away leaves and trash. He even found a few needles. Nash says he may have been the first person to write about the epidemic in Colorado's gay press in 1981. The headline of his article, Unique Pneumonia Strikes Gay Men. I asked him to share his memories of that time before AIDS even had a name. It felt like we were getting news that the planet was being invaded. It's, it was science fiction to hear that there might be an epidemic that was targeting uh, a very specific group of people. People who I imagine were your friends and loved ones. Very much my friends and loved ones. Uh, my partner of the last 42 years, now my husband, Dr. Bob Janowski, was treating gay men at that time in his practice, and he was beginning to see a lot of the people with initial symptoms during the mid-1980s become sick, and he would be with them until they died. What I would say, kind of in retrospect, is that in my early to mid-30s, I experienced what many people experience toward the end of their lives. You're seeing the people that you might live to grow old with dying, And I probably lost 50 or 60 friends and acquaintances that way. Not an experience you're supposed to have in your 30s, you're saying? My 30s and 40s, that's correct, yes. Not an experience that, it's it's very hard to describe in retrospect. Um, You know, in some ways, you just move on with your life. In other ways, you'll never be able to recover from that kind of loss. And I'm not even sure how you muster up the energy or the courage to go to that many memorial services trying to find the reservoir for that? Uh, Some of us just weren't able to go to all of them. I mean, we had jobs and, you know, so I remember one time uh, in one of my jobs as a writer for an organization, Uh, I knew a funeral was in progress that I couldn't go to, and I just burst into tears when I was sitting at my workstation at my job, and I just couldn't tell anybody why I was so upset. Why couldn't you tell anyone? I think that there was sort of this sense of disbelief. It was, I didn't want to be different than other people, so, but the fact that I was living this kind of, nightmare was not something I really wanted to share with people I worked with. Did that have to do with stigma at the time as well? Well, 
I have always been out as a gay man, so I don't think it was so much stigma. I didn't want to be the Debbie Downer in the office, you know. And it wasn't every day, but it, it was often enough. I, I was asked once to preside at a funeral, and one of the things that was really pretty disturbing, and I look back on it now and I went, oh my gosh, a former um, lover of his came up and started ripping out the flowers <laughs> that were on the, the altar and doing a speech from Shakespeare. He was an actor, and so he had a lot of drama. But it was, there, were, there were a lot of crazy things like that. Uh, you know, it was surrealistic in many ways. Yeah, what do you think that was about, that display? The memorial services and funerals for a lot of people who died in that time took on an inventive quality, making it lighter, making it a little bit lighter by letting go of balloons and not thinking of them as funerals, but as celebrations of life, because so much was lost. One of the reasons I'm involved with the AIDS Grove is when you think about the 6,000 people who died in Colorado of AIDS up to most recently. Most of them died in the 80s and 90s. But if each one of them had only another 20 more years to live, which is a very conservative estimate, that's 120,000 years of life that has been lost. That's 120 centuries, which is almost as long as human beings have been on this earth. And to not memorialize that massive loss of creativity, the, the friendships, and so forth. And it's not just the, the artists and the writers and the physicians and so forth, but it's the grocery store clerk. It's the, the person who, uh, the, the bus driver, it's the taxi driver, it's the, the person you see every day on the street and say hello to, but you don't even know their name. And then one day they're gone. Those are the people that this memorializes. There's one gentleman who was really critical to the Grove. Is that right? Tell me about him. Yes. In 1993, a man named Doug McNeil, who was a realtor here in Denver, passed away. He, he died of AIDS. And at the very end of his life, he said to his friends, I would like you to create a place in Denver where people can go and think about those that they have lost. A quiet place, a meditative place, just to contemplate what these lives have meant. And so uh, his friends, a, a group of seven or eight people, formed a nonprofit organization and raised money over several years and then began working with the city to create this place that we are right now. And this place that we are right now, I imagine lots of people walk by it with no idea of what it symbolizes. Do you think that's true? I know it's true that many people have no idea that this place exists. Because after it was dedicated in the year 2000, it was forgotten. It was a time still in the year 2000 when the stigma of AIDS uh, made it difficult to talk about these issues. And I felt, several of us felt, a duty to come down and begin taking care of this place and to let more people know about its existence so that they may benefit from the consolation of what it may bring to them, each as an individual. Do you ever have the thought... Gosh, there but for the grace of God go I. That is to say, you lost so many friends and you're still here. Yes, there is no particularly good reason why I'm here and others in my 
generation are not. Um, but that gives me a sense of responsibility to their memory. Phil Nash of Denver. He was the first board president of the Colorado AIDS Project. The rededication of the Grove in Denver's Commons Park takes place Sunday afternoon. See photos of the memorial and the cleanup project at cprnews.org. Coming up, the special relationship between Italy and Colorado when it comes to beer. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Sipping Chianti may be the image you have of drinking in Italy, but beer? Italy's craft beer scene is still young. Denver author Brian Jansing co-wrote a book about the burgeoning Italian beer industry and a key figure in it. That's brewer Alex Liberati. He has now moved to Denver and plans to open the first Italian-style brewery in the state, possibly the country, early next year. And they're going to talk to us about the Italian beer scene, how it relates to Colorado. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Alex, uh, 15 years ago, you say Italy was the Galapagos of beer. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, um, Italians 15 years ago weren't too good in uh, speaking English, so they weren't too intertwined with the international brewing community. Because the lingua franca of beer is English? Uh, Well, the lingua franca of the international brewing community is. But, you know, in Italy, no one speaks more than Italian. Well, these years are different, but at the time, it was hard for brewers to actually understand what the good practice was, you know, which was, you know, the normal good practice um, used by other brewers. So obviously, uh, we developed in a very particular way. People started doing all crazy stuff with their beer um, just because they didn't know that, you know, uh, other people in the world were doing it. So, for example, barrel aging or dry hopping was something experimental in Italy. So that's why we developed in a certain particular way like the Galapagos so we tried we turned to uh, to uh, to our local ingredients we have we're a very biodiverse country and so we started using all the local ingredients and so yeah that's what's uh, particular I'd say in Italian craft brewing well, and more importantly the too is that there were no books written in Italian on brewing oh right so there was nowhere to go they couldn't just go read a book they had to learn German or really understand the English technical terms and and that that's kind of daunting even in your own language. So what are some of the local ingredients that the Italians used that, I don't know, might be somewhat foreign to the rest of the world? Well, uh, it's funny you ask, but, you know, uh, last year uh, we got our first beer style certified by the BJCP, so the Beer Judge Certification Program, and it's actually an Italian grape ale. So, you know, using grapes or wine must or, you know, just wine or uh, wine yeast or, and so basically that's one of our styles. But along with that, we've been using anything you could imagine. So from peaches to mint to tobacco. Chestnuts. Uh, chestnuts. That's absolutely how they started. Big mm-hmm. um, yeah, sage, whatever. I mean, you know, just to give you an idea of the biodiversity, we have just in the region of Piemonte, which is one of our 20 regions, we have more than – how many species of pumpkin was that? Oh, there's like 300 species of pumpkins. Oh, so pumpkin beer is a big thing in Italy. Of course, there are a lot of mixed feelings about pumpkin beer yeah, right there, I, Brian. Yeah, you know, pumpkin doesn't have a lot of that sugar necessary to build on, so it's a little no. tricky. So when you say that it was the Galapagos of beer, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Oh, no, like that's there's a actually lot of, Yeah, a lot, that, lot of regional flavor. 
and diversity. Absolutely. That's a pretty good thing. Actually, it pushed these brewers to think out of the box. So we got people who purposely oxidized their beer, which is something which normally it's like a big no-no in, you know, brewing practice or other people who got a cigar and, uh, you know, just blew the smoke through their fermenters. So it, it's Or kind using of, tobacco beer, literally using tobacco to make a beer with, which you couldn't do in many countries, but in Italy, they're open to doing anything. And, and, and so, Brian, you say brewers in Colorado were key in launching the Italian craft beer movement. Uh, you know, they had a lot of influence on the Italians and how they thought, uh, you know, hoppy beers, for example, you know, just there's so many diverse IPAs in this country. And, you know, here we take it for granted. We could drink, you know, you could just go to three or four different locations and try many different types of IPAs. Right. And, you know, there they don't have, they didn't have that then. And they're still kind of working on that part. But, but there were sort of Colorado beer emissaries, I guess, that went to Italy. Uh, yeah. Well, we got well, Eric from Left Hand. He was like, you know, exactly. his, his wife is Italian. So he's been, you know, from the start uh, traveling Italy and, you know, teaching, praising the word, the hoppy word. And so this is that's Eric, Eric Wallace. Absolutely. From Left, from left uh, Hand owner. Brewing in um, uh, Longmont. Longmont, exactly. So that's, that's for one. But also the first hoppy IPAs, whichever hit Italy were Great Divide mm -hmm. and at the time it was still a Coloradian uh, brewery um, Flying Dog. Yeah, that's so. right. I want to know what kind of resistance you met, Alex, in Italy to beer because it's such a wine place. I mean, you were talking about grape beer, for mm -hmm. instance. I thought, well, that's a nice, safe step for Italians <laughs> to take towards beer. But, you know, was there resistance? Were there even policy obstacles? To oh, yeah. It's crazy. Like, basically... Every politician in Italy owns a winery and uh, they definitely don't own breweries. So, you know, there's a very strong lobby on the wine industry in Italy and they've really tried, you know, to make life hard for us. For example, wine doesn't pay taxes while we are with we beer brewers are the most highly taxed in Europe, one of the most. So that's just to let you to give you an idea. And then the legislation is insane. I've been um, on the board of directors of our Brewers Association for four years, and I've seen all sorts. For example, there was a guy who started out brewing in like 98, so one of our first brewers. In, in who, Italy, yeah. In Italy, who, uh, who wrote uh, Birra Artigianale, so craft beer, on his bottle. And he got fined 11,000 euros for doing that. No reason. There was no reason. And he had to take all the bottles that he sold uh, back into his warehouse again and change the labels. There's no reason for that. But we have a law that says that the guy who applies the law, so the funcionario, the functionary that applies the, official. the law, the official, the, it's which applies up, the law, yeah. can apply it freely as it will, can interpret it freely at its at his will. So. You know, that You're very vulnerable then very, as, always, as a beer indeed. brewer in Italy. Are there other examples that you ran into perhaps personally? Oh, yeah. The I sink. mean, I got uh, <laughs> I got one of my restaurants closed down for a week because we had a sink too many in our bathroom. Go figure. Um, I had uh, – I was uh, sued by the same – so by the city for having an umbrella up in my bar, which by the way, I had a regular permit for and the same guys who – signed that permit, then came back six months later and sued me for that same umbrella. And after three years, I went in front of a judge because it took like three years or four. And the judge says, oh, sorry, Mr. Liberati, this is such a big misunderstanding. Well, you know, we'll do nothing about it. And that's okay for But you. that was three years of your time, Alex yeah. Liberati. We're speaking with him, who's an Italian brewer who has come to Colorado to introduce us to the Italian uh, beer scene. And a Denver author, Brian Jansing, is with us as well. He's co-written Italy beer country. 
And uh, put this into perspective for us, Brian, is there a real thirst for beer in Italy? Uh, yeah, very much. Uh, more Italians drink beer outside of the home than they do uh, wine. So it's a preferred drink. Meaning when they go out. Yeah, when they go out, they're drinking beer now uh, oh. rather than wine. Uh, wine, of course, is their daily drink at home. It's with their meals. Um, but beer is so easy to pair with food, and it's such a food culture. It, it's, you know, for them, it's nice to go out and do something a little different and have a beer. Now, you know, they're not, it's not a culture where they really belly up to the bar and just drink beer. It's not quite there. It's not the same kind of concept. They're, they're, you know, the stereotype of Italians are drinkers, but really Italians don't drink that much alcohol. Well, we got the wine thing. So we're used to, you know, smelling and tasting yeah. as we would be tasting the wine. So that's a good part of the Italian culture of, you know, drinking beer, do having that same approach. But, you know, there's a lot of other things that we have to consider. For example, it's like we're kind of scratching the f surface of mm -hmm. Italian drinking at the moment in Italy, although we started out in 96, but people drink 29 liters of beer pro capita a year. That's, we're the last in Europe <laughs> along with Greece. So you, you see potential. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Well, let's talk about your bringing Italian beer to Colorado. So your hope is to open a brewery here mm -hmm. and to introduce Coloradans to what? Well, it's going to be a brew pub. We're going to be on 24th and Champa, and uh, we're going to be uh, showcasing Italian street food and Italian-style beers. So we'd, I'd like personally to Am be... I going to get that tobacco experience? <laughs> I'm really might. intrigued by that. You just that. might. It's delicious. Beer. <laughs> you just might, I'm telling you. But um, obviously, it... it, it I, I really like uh, the local community, the local ingredients here. So I'd like to be brewing out of the box with the local ingredients that we have here, as well as importing some other ingredients from Italy or growing them here. Give me some examples. Uh, well, Sorrento lemons, for example. Mm. They grow in the Sorrento Valley, which is near the Naples. These, um, these lemons are amazing. The yellow they are is shoots in your eyes. The aromas and the, <laughs> the, 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 the taste of it is so peculiar in particular. They're nearly kind of sweet. Mm -hmm. And so brewing with those, a saison with those lemons is uh, a very particular Zesty. unique saison. <laughs> Absolutely. Limoncello. That's what it comes from. Well, compare and contrast a bit the environments uh, in Italy and in Colorado <laughs> for setting up a business. Have you, <laughs> well, had, have you had more support here or are other brewers like uh, you know, kind of sharks and jets here? Well, for someone who wants to do business here in Denver, uh, it's a paradise. I mean, coming from Italy. And apart from that, you know, the fact that, you know, this is a really business-friendly community here. Uh, apart from that, the the brewers community have been amazing. I mean, they've been so welcoming uh, to us. They've everyone's pointed us in the right direction, put us on the right tracks, gave us phone call uh, phone numbers, uh, connections. So way really, way different. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, in Italy, unfortunately, yeah, it's a bit more. Yeah, a bit more. Uh, Coming with the sharks. Yeah, kind of. So, <laughs> Brian, just a, a little bit more of the Italian beer scene. So it's growing, was, you but, know, yeah, put it into context. Yeah, you know, 10 years ago, you would – it's still a very uh, – even people who have a lot of knowledge about beer, I mean, really are aware of the beer world, still don't realize Italy what Italy's doing. Uh, they are certainly the second – the best in Europe, second probably only to the United States as far as creativity and styles and – um, but, you know, 10 years ago, you wouldn't have really seen very much. But today, you know, the brewers, breweries are opening up in Berlin and uh, there's a uh, like a brew pub or a pub for Italian craft beer in London. So now, it, you know, in the old, 
20 years ago, they were, the Italians were learning from the Germans and doing German style beers. Now Italy's going to Germany and I teaching see. them craft beer because Germany's fallen behind with their laws and they, they're just starting to do a craft beer scene. Well, get the people who are right there right now are the Italian craft brewers and their influence on the Germans is going to be interesting. So it's kind of come all the way around in full circle. We may have beer tourists listening. Would, would <laughs> Italy be a suggested stop for oh, you? Absolutely. Uh, Paul and I, who I wrote the book with, uh, set up Italian craft beer tours. And, you know, it, it, a lot of these places are kind of distant, they're far away. Uh, we always laugh because when we first started writing the book, you know, they don't have signs up. It's really hard to find these places. It's just typical Italians. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Beba, one of the people, we were, they were one of the original four frontier uh, breweries and got started in 96. We went to look for their place. It's in a, uh, you know, factory kind of setting and you're driving around looking for them and they didn't have a sign. So when we finally found the place and we talked to them, just a little door, we just knock on it. Oh, it is a place. I see chairs and tables here. And, and he's like, oh yeah, our sign, it blew down. When we found out how much it costs, we decided not to put one up. <laughs> so, yeah, it sounds like they um, could use some of the business side of this as well. Yeah. Gentlemen, thanks so much for Thank being with you. us. Yeah, nice to meet Absolutely. you. Alex Liberati, he's an Italian brewer and a Denver author, Brian Jansing, who's written Italy Beer Country. You can read an excerpt of that at cprnews.org, where you'll also find photos of some of Liberati's Italian breweries. Tomorrow, we'll listen back to a conversation with a man who wrote the book on craft brewing. That's Charlie Papazian. We talked to him a few years back about craft scenes around the world. He did something of a tour, including Brazil, Japan, Peru, and Germany. So that's tomorrow. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Poetry is an ongoing experiment for Dan Beachy Quick of Colorado State University. His most recent collection is called Gentlessness. That's a word he created. This collection is a finalist for a Colorado Book Award. And Dan, welcome to the program. Thank you. What does gentlessness mean? Well, uh, it is, as you said, a word I made up and is within uh, uh, one of the poems itself. A word it says that's to de- describe that which to exist must deny itself. And one of the things within this kind of larger experiment poetry sometimes seems to me is that poetry is a kind of ongoing encouragement to revalue things that we often take for granted, how we value ourselves uh, among others, how we value those others, assumptions we make about what it is to be in the world. And poetry enters into those forms of certainty and encourages us to do this very difficult thing, which is to get more towards that awful thing to admit, which is I don't wholly know or I don't wholly understand, Um, which seems to me in a very strange way, a gentle work, very ungently done, Mm. Um, that poetry makes for us a ground of remaining in discomfort and uncertainty that we wouldn't manage otherwise. And so gentlessness captures this uncertainty of living. And is this an idea that came to you, uh, you know, in a flash or over time from dwelling on the planets here? Well, I think it came from many, many years of writing poems since high school in many ways. I've kind of monomaniacally pursued what it is to try and write just a good poem and to see what poetry has offered uh, over the course of a life spent trying to write it. Um, The experiment of the poem feels a very ungentle thing. 
One of the sections of the book, a whole poem in itself, is called Overtakelessness. Uh, that is another word that sounds like you made it up, but I think it, I think it comes from Emily Dickinson, is that? It does come from Emily Dickinson and her pondering of the way in which life is always overtaken by those forces that end life. Um, one of her kind of main concerns, and yet that one in the midst of life gets to continue to think about even the end of it. Um, and yes, yeah, so overtakelessness is, is coming from that particular poem, number 51, I yeah, believe. Let's hear part of your poem, Overtakelessness. It starts um, this field on page 61. This field, this leaky boat, the sea seeps in, springs up and in, and under the grain beneath the seeds, we don't sift fingers through amber waves. We learn to drown or we sink. We've posted this poem and others at cprnews.org, and the, the structure of them, the, the appearance of them on the page is very important. Uh, what's going on in this part of the poem? One of the things going throughout this kind of lengthy poem made up of short pieces is a kind of reversal into what seem to be opposite symbols but are often connected between the field as a place of work and the sea as a place of uh, danger. Um, one of the things I was thinking about most is that poetry as a field of investigation is somehow without definite limit to its width, to its breadth. Um, that the ocean in a similar sort of way is limitless with its sense of depth and that one of the ways in which one can see wind moving through wheat, for instance, or long grasses, is that it looks strangely ocean-like. Sea-like, yeah, absolutely. Wave-like. Wave-like, yeah. Wave -like. Wave -like, yeah. Um, and so uh, I was imagining as one of the kind of properties of working in a, in a poem is that you, uh, to create a line, drag as it would be a plow behind you, the line springs up, but what opens isn't necessarily the furrow, but the ocean entire, that one infinite work leads to another kind of indefinite discovery. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with Fort Collins poet Dan Beachy Quick. His collection, Gentlessness, a term that he coined, is up for a Colorado Book Award. You use traditional forms that were popular pardon me, in the past as a jumping-off point for this collection. Um, are these forms from poetry's history uh, still relevant? Well, one of the things that I think is ungentle in the work of poetry is that you cease being able to feel certain about what's relevant and what isn't. Um, my sense is that the history of poetry, those classic symbols, those tropes, those turns of speech, those meters, those rhymes, yeah. continue to exert an extraordinary amount of human meaning in our postmodern 21st century life. And any easy division between what it might be to think of traditional poetry versus experimental poetry, when one's deeply in the field of the poem, become in many ways not so easily distinguishable. And so figuring out how to get back towards those roots of human consciousness, of this ongoing effort that seems not just lifelong, but over every generation of the same condition. I have a life. How do I do it? in it, be in it meaningfully. I love that. That is poetry at its essence. I have a life. What does it mean? 
Sonnets are one of the most traditional poetic forms. And let's hear one of your sonnets. Uh, Read the one from 73, page 73, would you? Yes. Be generous, but the nettle's bloom bitters its lesson deep into the thumb's lovely incaution. And the rose thrown in the gutter still casts out its scent so sweet, its sickly, almost shapely, love's ghastly prepossession. I hoped to die before spring came again. Then the dung beetle made its confession. Then the pillow kept my silhouette stain. I rose as if I never had risen. Be cautious. But the letter lays bare those marks her own hand pressed through words onto the page below this page, where white on white makes present all past absurd legibility as grief notes grief, the colors of the sky and the sky itself. I love the notion that in this sonnet you've got both the rose and the dung beetle. What a contrast. Yes, well, one seems to, in some inevitable way, require us to ponder the other. How so? Tell me more. Well, the poem and all of the sonnets in this section are very much tied to John Keats. And the poem takes, um, in perhaps a too secretive sort of way, its inspiration from this moment when Keats is in Rome and dying. His friend Joseph Severn is taking care of him and has gone out and come back with roses. Um, It's early for roses in England, but in Rome, where Keats is to try to recover from his illness, they're blooming. And he brought them in thinking that Keats, who so loved roses and every form of beauty, would be thrilled to see them. And Keats's reaction was exactly the opposite, that he says he had hoped uh, to never see a rose again that it was too painful for him. Mm. Um, And the letters his friends wrote, the letter the woman he loved wrote, he wouldn't even open. He couldn't bear even the sight of the handwriting of those who he loved most. Are you afraid sometimes that when someone reads your poetry, they won't pick up on all of that? You know, there's no curation along with it that says, here's what to think, or, or, and of course you wouldn't want to say, here's what to think necessarily, but here are the inspirations or the impressions to 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 meditate on yeah i i fear it as a writer of poems i also fear it in some ways as a reader of poems because what am i missing yeah nothing yeah nothing comes with the instruction manual and should an instruction manual be given it would somehow limit the appreciation or nature or meaning that one can grab from the poem my hope is that within any given poem there's enough elements that are recognizable via be it music or be it an image that somehow sparks a memory in any given reader that the poems turn towards a meaning that are inherent both to the poem itself and the person that might be reading it. Um, but there is, there all these poems spring from various other sources, but every poem does. So Keats has inspired you. Does place inspire you? Uh, absolutely. I grew up in Colorado and getting to return to Colorado um, has made writing feel once again a home-like activity, a way to remember that I am at home, to work towards being at home. Um, And that's very much tied to looking at sky and clouds and mountains and the particular light Colorado gets. Why don't we wrap up with another excerpt from Overtakelessness? This is on page 55. It starts with, I pull the plow, this notion of field once again, which is also a, a pretty iconic Colorado image, I think, too. 
Uh, absolutely. I pull the plow behind me. It cuts a line I cannot see. It opens up the sea behind me as I work. How do I know? I hear the waves crash on rocks that they are there. Brine in the air, the gulls cry out hunger. Why are they so sad? The sea, the sea, it is a long line behind me, using itself to point at itself. It also points away, using itself to point away. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Dan B. Quick teaches writing at Colorado State University in Fort Collins. His book of poetry, Gentlessness, is a finalist for the Colorado Book Award. The ceremony is May 21st, and as I said, we've posted a few of his poems at cprnews.org. Still to come, swimmer Missy Franklin on the upcoming Olympics. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. If Missy Franklin makes the U.S. Olympic team next month, as she's expected to, she'll get to celebrate with champagne. The swimmer from Centennial, Colorado, just turned 21, and she's home not just to celebrate her birthday, but to train. She's looking to defend her gold medals from four years ago at the Rio Games this summer. Franklin has gone pro and added endorsements from Wheaties, Speedo, and Minute Maid. When I reached her by phone back in March, I asked what time she gets to the pool each morning. Normally, it's about 6 o'clock. I'm very much a morning person. Um, I like to really get up and, like, make breakfast, have coffee before I go to morning workout. So that way, when I get there, I'm super alert and awake. So I get up, and I'm just, like, ready to take on the day. (laughs) What is the can't-miss food that is your fuel for morning practice? So I'm actually a huge fan. Um, They're from Whole Foods. They're called breakfast rounds, um, and they're these delicious little rounds that are whole grains. They've got protein fiber, and I'll put them in the toaster and put some almond butter on it, and that way I've got a really good mix of of carbs and protein heading into my workout. Oh, my gosh. That sounds like an endorsement. They aren't paying you, are they? (laughs) They're amazing. It's so bad how many I go through. (laughs) I see. But you're not an official spokesperson. I, uh, for the breakfast rounds, I am not. I okay. am not, but I am for Wheaties, which is super exciting. So, you know, I'm always going to have a bowl of that lying around, too. And, and, and Speedo and Minute Maid, right? Yes, correct. Yes. Uh, I guess that means we're just going to see you everywhere leading up to the Summer Games. Pretty much. You guys are going to be incredibly sick of me, is what that means. <laughs> I wonder, um, you're at home now um, and eating at home as well, as your dad joked recently, seven meals a day to fuel your training beyond breakfast. Oh, he over-exaggerates. Don't listen to him. I see. (laughs) Have have you made any big purchases uh, coming into, like, you know, the endorsement money? You know, I really haven't. I like to consider myself a very frugal person. I'd rather, like, take the money and go out to, like, a really nice dinner with family or friends. I think it's it's much better to spend something like that on, on something you can enjoy with other people. Okay, you're not driving a Bentley. I, <laughs> I, would. I got that, yes. So we, we, I moved to California um, for school. I did get a, a BMW. That was my, my post-London treat to myself, and that was probably definitely the biggest thing I've gotten. <laughs> uh, London, obviously, referring to the rather uh, glorious games you had, the oh, Olympics there. Thank you. 
<laughs> so you're about a year into your professional career. You turned pro after winning a national title at the University of California, Berkeley. How does the life of a professional athlete compare with what you expected of it? You know, it's it's pretty similar. Um, that was kind of the nice thing about our timeline is I really had some time to prepare for this. I had some time to talk to other teammates, to talk to coaches, to kind of get an understanding of what being a professional athlete was going to be like. And so it's been very much like what I expected. Um, tons of traveling. It's crazy. The airport is like my second home. I mean, certainly you were traveling a lot before. Um, what else? Yeah. What else changes? Well, you know, it's it's different kind of traveling now, especially this year, um, going into another Olympic Games. You know, this is the year that not only does your training really amp up, but so do all these obligations you have with your sponsors and with your endorsement deals. And so, you know, when I'm traveling, it's not just like hopping on a plane, going somewhere and coming back. There are eight to ten hour long production days of constant filming, shooting, all this stuff. I mean, it is work. And so to have to go and and then do training before all of that even begins and then do a day of that, you know, it's, it's, it's exhausting and trying to balance all of it. But having, you know, a good idea, my coach Todd is actually able to come with me for a lot of stuff, which really helps. So that way he can kind of assess how tired I am in the morning before he gives me a 6,000-yard workout. <laughs> and then you might go on to, you know, tape a Wheaties ad or something. Yeah, (laughs) hopefully. If I could get on a Wheaties box, I would be pretty excited about it. (laughs) Okay. Well, and I wonder if it's, you know, this new balancing in in a pro career that explains maybe some of the situation in the pool this year. So you had five medals at World Championships in August last year, three golds, but none in the individual category. You know, that's not up to, I suppose, normal Missy standards. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it wasn't. Um, And it was definitely a little bit of disappointment, but I learned a lot from that meet. And and I really don't think that had anything to do with being a professional athlete. I actually suffered a pretty bad injury in 2014. um, And so I've been trying to kind of come back from that and really sort of make my way up from the bottom again, which has been an incredibly challenging journey, but also an incredibly rewarding one. So I know my body better now than I ever have, and I feel like I'm training better and that I'm stronger than I've ever been. So very good feelings moving forward. And uh, you did set a personal best time in the 400 freestyle. Uh, I, I did. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's kind of kind of random. So we, I actually competed the week before that in Orlando, um, which went really well. So I swam a full meet there, flew from Orlando to L.A., did the USOC Media Summit on Monday, flew back to Fort Lauderdale Tuesday morning, and began competing on Thursday. Um, And this meet that we were at, it was um, sectionals. And so it was actually a little bit younger. And so we brought 30 people from our team. We ranged from 11 years old to 25. And so it was a much more relaxed meet than what I was used to. And we were actually still training every single morning. So the fact that I was able to go best time was uh, pretty exciting. I was not expecting it. <laughs> you have set a, a long-term goal to become the most decorated female swimmer ever. And you hope to compete in seven events in Rio. Uh, though, of course, there are trials until then. What are your goals in Brazil? I mean, do you, do you set like medal or time records in particular? Yeah, so, well, we actually haven't decided how many events I'm going to be swimming in Rio. I did seven in London, but um, we haven't announced our schedule going into the summer. Um, my coach and I kind of keeping that to ourselves and kind of figuring it out, taking it meet by meet, what's going to be best for me and how I can best help my team. 
But there's going into a meet, you know, I never, ever set a medal goal. I never go in there thinking I want to win this number of medals and I want them to be this color because in my mind, that's me basing my goals on other people. Um, I have no idea and I have no control over what my competitors are going to do. And that's not something I can be putting my energy and my focus into because if I have no control over it, that's wasted energy. And so going in there, hoping for a gold medal, like absolutely it's something I hope for. It's something I dream of. But that's not my goal. My goal is to be my best, and I go in there with times that I think I'm capable of achieving. And if that goal time is a gold medal, then that's great. If it's a silver, that's great. And if it's no medal at all, that's great. That's what I went in there to do. And and if that's my best, then that's all I can give. Yeah, it makes so much sense because, of course, time is a very intimate and personal goal as opposed to a medal, which is uh, uh, contextual. Um, yeah. b- back in, in high school in Aurora, you said your favorite athlete was Natalie Coughlin. Uh, you were Mm -hmm. You were her teammate four years ago, and you might compete side-by-side again this year. What have you learned from Natalie, and is it a bit strange being teamed up with your idol? Oh, my gosh, yes. I've learned so much from Nat over the years. Um, That's one of my favorite things about this sport, um, is you go to a pro series, and you have high school swimmers being able to watch and compete against the best in the world, against Natalie Coughlin, against Michael Phelps. It's it's like having a basketball tournament where, you know, you get a team out there and they're playing against Steph Curry. Like, it's just, that's what it's like for us. And that's why I think it's amazing that, you know, these young athletes have the opportunity to watch and race some of the greatest that have ever lived. And so I met Nat when I was 14, I think. It's incredible to me that one of my greatest idols is now also a true friend and someone that I can go to, someone who I can talk to and rely on. And and anytime I get to race her, it's just such a privilege, and it's a privilege even just watching her race. I want to get back to the games in Rio in just a second, but I'm curious about your schooling. So. Obviously, you can't balance a full, you know, class load if you're maintaining the kind of schedule that you are. What are you, what are you studying and what are your thoughts for graduation? So, I am majoring in psychology um, with hopefully a minor in education, and I just love it. I am so passionate about it, and I'm such a dork. I love going to classes. I love everything. It's just, it's, I have so much fun with it all. Um, So I have two full years under my belt at Cal. Um, I've been kind of taking a scattering of online classes um, throughout this year, and I'll probably take the fall off as well just to kind of get reassorted back into Berkeley and give myself a little time off, a little bit of break that I I really haven't had the past 21 years. Um, So the nice thing is I know no matter what that I'm going to get my undergrad from Cal, and if it takes two years, two and a half, I'm, I'm not in a crazy rush to get it done. So I really just want to enjoy the experience of being a student there. What do you envision yourself doing uh, after swimming in terms of a career? Like, do you want to be a therapist? Do you want to work in a school? What? So I'm actually incredibly passionate about developmental psychology. Um, I love children. I'm going to do the same thing I've done my whole life, which is just follow my heart and follow my passion and see what that leads me to. And I know that even when I'm done swimming, I, I hopefully will never you know, be completely uninvolved with the sport. Um, I would love to do color commentating. I would love to be able to travel and and do meets and and do stuff like that, too. 
let's wrap up with a, a discussion of of Rio and the health concerns around those games. So you'll be in pool water, but uh, your fellow athletes yeah. who do everything from sailing to triathlon will be in water that is, uh, it appears, contaminated with sewage. Meanwhile, there's the Zika virus. Uh, does that does that stuff psych you out at all? It really doesn't. Um, you know, it, it's so hard for an athlete going into the games, and we're kind of hearing all this. And, you know, again, it goes back to what do we have control over? Um, and that's just something that we don't have control over. The games are still several months out. Um, I kind of feel like going into games, there's always different things that pop up that are going wrong or not going as planned. And, you know, if we let ourselves worry about that, we're taking away energy that we could be using to train and to really make sure that we're doing what we can do right now to make sure we're at our best when we get there. And so just going to kind of take it day by day, let everything play out as it does. And whenever we go places, USA Swimming always does an amazing job of making sure that we're safe and making sure that we know exactly what it is we're getting into. And I know that's going to be no different this time around. That is Missy Franklin and her laugh. She's a swimmer from Centennial, south of Denver. Olympic trials are next month. That conversation is from March. This weekend, Swallow Hill Music presents the ninth annual Denver Uke Fest, which includes workshops, jams, and concerts all celebrating the ukulele. One of the festival's featured artists is Denver's The Milk Blossoms, an experimental pop trio that blends ukulele, keyboard, and vocal beatboxing. They call the combination ukulele trip-hop. From their debut album, Warrior, here's the track Greyhound, recorded in the CPR Performance Studio. Denver's The Milk Blossoms, ahead of this weekend's Denver Uke Fest. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.